Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Movies have bad guys, don't they? I mean, epics have especially bad guys. Hannibal Lecter, Joker, Darth Vader, Hans Gruber, Thanos, Sauron, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Gollum. Even Christmas movies have villains. Mr. Potter, Jack Frost. Why do movies have villains? I mean, I mean when you go see a movie, why is there always a bad guy or a bad gal in a movie? Well, it's because evil is present in our world. No matter what one believes about God or life or whatever, you have to admit evil is present in our world. All you have to do is read the news from last night, any night, and you'll see that. And it's personal, isn't it? Because anytime someone tries to do something good, evil shows up. I'm guessing you've experienced that personally because you're trying to do something good. And the next thing you know, you have an enemy. You ever, you ever ask yourself, why does she hate me? You know, why does this person come against me? Why does, he, why does he do these things? I'm just trying to do good. I'm trying to help. Well, it's because you and I live in a world where evil is present. And if anyone denies the reality of evil, well, denial is a good word, isn't it? Well, I want you to know that in the Christmas story, there's a villain. And our Christmas epic has a villain with a face in it. That guy is named Herod. Now, I should let you know that Herod is a king of sorts, but he's not a king in Israel like other kings that you read about in the Bible. Because by the time Herod is there in the first century, uh, Rome really rules the world. Rome is the one that has the juice, the power. But Rome has this deal of kind of letting some kind of local person be Rome's emissary so that, I mean, they think that maybe the inhabitants of that region will feel better if somebody that looks like them is running the place, even though Rome is really the power behind the throne. And the person that Rome installs in Judea is a guy by the name of Herod. But Herod's not even a Jew. Herod's an item man. And the Romans don't know the difference. They, they don't understand, but they put Herod in place. And the reason why I'm spending a little time telling you that is it's going to matter a lot in just a moment when we start talking about the Christmas epic, just so that you'll understand that Herod is not a natural-born king. The kings in Israel were all descendants of King David through the line of Judah, which is interesting because when you study the life of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, you'll notice that those stories begin with a genealogy, a family tree. And the reason why all that so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so is there is so that it could be established that Jesus has a legal right and a natural right to the throne of Israel. In fact, when all the records were destroyed with the destruction of the temple, it is kind of interesting because probably the only Jewish person in the world who could prove his lineage is Jesus. And just to show how thorough the Bible is, when you read Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, you'll notice that it's all the same until it gets to David, but then all of a sudden it splays. Because Matthew's genealogy is the legal genealogy of Jesus. Joseph was not his biological father, but he is the father of record. And so in Matthew, you see it's Joseph's genealogy. He's a descendant of David's son, Solomon. But when you get over to to Luke, it's Mary's genealogy. Dr. Luke is following the biological line, and it goes back to David's son, Nathan. So it's just to prove that Jesus is the natural-born king of Israel that has a right to the throne. But there have, been no, there have been no kings from the line of Judah or David for 500 years. Herod's just put there. 
He's not a natural born king. And I know I'm spending some time there, but in just a moment that will make sense. Well, things went south. When some well-meaning guys came to Jerusalem and they had a perfectly innocent question. They were the wise men, the magi. A lot of whole, whole lot of theories about who they were. I really believe that they came from, they came from uh, Babylon and they would have been descendants of a line of intelligentsia that 500 years before were influenced by a Jewish prophet who had been taken into captivity named Daniel. And the idea when Daniel and the other young people were taken captive was that they were going to be inculcated in the Babylonian way of life and they would actually become missionaries to the Jewish people on behalf of the Babylonians. But something happened with Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You may know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead of Babylon having influence on them, they had influence on Babylon. And I'm even going to bring a talk to you in January because I really believe the King Nebuchadnezzar became a believer under Daniel's influence when you read chapter four. What Daniel did was he taught him the word of God. You see, in the Old Testament, there are prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus, a bunch of them, um, that he'd be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, that he would die as on a crucif in crucifixion, Psalm 22, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. There's just a whole bunch of these prophecies. And so Daniel, no doubt, taught them how they could look for the Messiah whenever he came. But one of the prophecies that he no doubt taught them was Numbers 24, 17, which says that the birth of the Messiah would be associated with a star. And so, like I said, they were perfectly innocent. I mean, hey, if you didn't know much about the Bible, except just a few prophecies that had been handed down through the generations, and you knew there was a new king born in Israel, where would you go? You wouldn't go to a stable in Bethlehem. You go to the palace. You just, you know, I'm sure that when the wise men rolled into Jerusalem, they were like, man, this place is going to be crazy. Everybody's going to be partying and celebrating with the birth of the new king. And when they got there, it was like crickets. And so they went, they went around, and the Greek says that they did it in, in kind of a continuing way. They went around asking everybody, where's he, this born king of the Jews? You know, we expected you guys to be partying your heads off. So finally, they just say, well, where would you go if you want to know? You want to go to the palace. And so they just strolled into the palace perfectly innocently, did not know what a can they were opening up. They, they walk into the palace and they ask this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and we've come to worship him. What they don't know is that they just, just, they just get the whole city in uproar, starting with Herod. Because in the next verse, the Bible says King Herod was deeply disturbed. That word is often translated ter terrified in the Bible when he heard this. You know, I never understand something. Maybe you can help me with this. One of the things I, I, I've, I've never understood is how people who are against God can actually see God work, but it doesn't mean anything to them. You know, you know what Herod did when he wanted to know where the Messiah was going to be born? He asked the Bible scholars to blow the dust off the Bible and find out where the Bible said the Messiah was going to be born. They blew the dust off. They said, it's Micah chapter 5, 2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's just a few miles south of Jerusalem. Well, if you believe the Bible enough to know where the Messiah is going to be born, why do you decide you want to kill the baby? Well, he did. 
He told the wise men, when you find him, come back and tell me because I want to worship him. But he was lying and God straightened the wise men out and God said, go home a different way. And when, the, when Herod realized he'd been duped by the wise men, he got really unhappy and mad. He had a bad temper and he decided he was going to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem that were two years old and younger. And I'm sure when you've heard that part of the Christmas story, you're saying, how could anybody be that evil? How could anyone have such murder in his heart that he would kill the innocents? But I just want you to know, that's just how Herod rolled. I mean, Herod killed his wife. He killed two of his sons. It's too much information. But the word for son in Greek is very close to the word for pig. And some of you who have teenage boys, you're like, that's not a surprise to me, Mark. Again, too much information. The Greek word for pig is hus. The Greek word for son is weos. And, and the joke in, in Jerusalem was it was safer to be Herod's hus than his weos. Safer to be his pig than his son. And as far as killing people, I mean, he tried to kill himself. It's true. Herod tried to commit suicide and failed at that. He was an unhappy, bitter, angry man. So when you read the Christmas story, the Christmas story, the epic does have a villain, and the one with the face is Herod. And don't, don't mistake what I'm about to say. Herod is guilty, and he's going to pay for everything he did. But I want us to understand that in a way, like every other sinner, Herod's a victim. He is a victim of the real villain. And for a few moments, I want to talk to you about the real villain of the Christmas story. We've already seen the producer, God the Father, the director of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we heard a message how that there's still roles available to be part of the Christmas epic in a, in a message called Supporting Cast. But today, I'm gonna to talk about the villain. And some of you know where I'm headed with this, don't you? And you know what you're saying? Some of you, you're like, I can't believe Mark's doing this. We're getting here for a Christmas series. Man, look at our stage. We listen to Christmas music. I cannot believe, and I gotta be honest with you, in, in, um, oh my goodness, in almost 50 years of preaching, I've never brought a Christmas message on the devil before. And somebody's out there, I can't believe Mark's going to do this. I mean, is he really going to do this? I mean, we've got lights and everything, we've got trees up and everything, and we had this awesome series with this theater vibe, and now Mark is going to stand on stage and he's going to talk about the devil at Christmas. Well, I wouldn't blame you for that, if that's what you're feeling, but why don't we set that aside for a moment? Let's ask a more existential question. Why Christmas? And why do we celebrate Christmas? I mean, if you think about it, Christmas is a unique holiday. It's the only holiday that has a season associated with it. We don't talk about the 4th of July season. You know, we don't talk about the Thanksgiving season. But with Christmas, there's a season. I mean, this, the whole month of December and part of November, and if you think about how the stores do it, it goes all the way back to... February. <laughs> Why do we have this season? Why do we put trees in our house? Why do we light them up? Why do we light the outside of our house? I mean, I, I love Christmas lights. I like driving around. My, I, I love going through my neighborhood. It's kind of a small neighborhood, and, and I love just driving through the winding streets and seeing all the lights that people put up. I don't put them up. I enjoy my neighbor's lights too much. <laughs> I have one neighbor. I don't know. He may be a new springer. I, I just love him. I mean, he is the Tim Allen of our neighborhood, I promise you. And his house is just, it's so, I mean, he works and I just, I just love driving. I, I love driving down past his house and just looking at that magnificent light display. Why do we do that? Why do we sing music? Why do we get together and cook all the food that we eat that's gonna cause us trouble in January? I mean, why is it that we spend so much money that we're like, oh my goodness, 
Why do we do that? I mean, can we just pull back for a moment and ask the question, why Christmas? Ever since I knew I was gonna bring this talk to you and I've known about it for 10 months, maybe 11, there's been one verse that it's like the Holy Spirit is just tattooed on my soul. And here it is, 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God came to. Well, to there is a purpose word. The Son of God came, that's Christmas. That's Bethlehem. That's Mary and Joseph. That's, that's the angels. That's the wise men. That's the shepherds. And then, of course, the star of Christmas we'll talk about on Christmas Eve is Jesus. Now, you saw what I saw. The Son of God came to. Came to what? Look at the verse with me. The Son of God came to, here's the purpose of Christmas, destroy the works of the devil. So that's why I'm preaching on the devil in a Christmas series. When Joseph and Mary held that little baby, that little baby was God in skin coming on a rescue mission and his purpose was to wipe out the, the works of the devil. Now, I've loved this verse so much. There are actually a couple of other translations that I just, I want this to marinate in your soul a little bit before we get started. In the Good News translation, the Bible says the Son of God appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. For anybody here who has been harmed by Satan in your life, and I'm guessing that's every single one of us, isn't it good news to know that Jesus came in the world to destroy the damage that the devil had done? He came in the world to undo the damage that Satan had done. <laughs> well, my favorite translation is the Phillips translation because it says this, the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of liquidating the devil's activities. Now, you know what it means when you liquidate somebody? It means you take all their assets away. So what the Bible says is that Jesus came to just liquidate, to bankrupt the devil, to wipe out all his assets. Well, I just want you to know about that. When you hang up the, you know, when you hang up the stocking and you put, you put your Christmas tree up in your house and you light the lights and you eat the food and you sing the songs and you have the parties, we all do it. It's, it's for good reason. It's all about the Son of God coming into our world to liquidate the assets of Satan. So it's like, Mark, I'm still having trouble with this because I'm trying to have the Christmas vibe and you're talking about the devil. Hey, it's even in the songs. Do you ever sing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen? To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Yeah, it's in the music. Okay. If Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, three quick questions. Number one, who is the devil? Number two, what are the works of the devil? And number three, how does Jesus beat the devil? So if you'll give me 25 minutes, and that's a whole lot to cover in 25, maybe 30 minutes. 37? Okay, who is the devil? Number one, God's enemy, not God's equal. I got friends here in non-theists, and they say, oh, okay, you just have to invent this fantasy. You have a God, so you have to have this opposite and equal counterbalance. No, no, no. He's not, he's opposite, but he's not equal. Satan is not omnipresent, not omniscient, not omnipotent. So what is, who is Satan? Well, he's not the image that we have. And Satan's got to, he's got to ride this all the way to the bank. This idea that he's got a goat head and pentagrams and all that stuff. He, he laughs all the way to the bank at that silliness. He's an angel. Perhaps the most beautiful of all the angels. May have been the most powerful of the angels. Because Michael, gets, Michael, the archangel, gets into opposition with him, and Michael won't even take him on. He just says, God rebuke you. So he is a magnificent angel. I want to take you to a couple of texts in the Old Testament that explain where Satan came from. Let's take the Ezekiel text. Ezekiel 37, excuse me, 28, verse 15. 
where God says you were blameless and all you did from the day you were created, there you go, he was created, from the day you were created until evil was found in you. So evidently when Lucifer was first created, he, he behaved himself until something stirred up within him that ultimately was the first expression of evil in the universe. Verse 17, God says, your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So God said, I threw you to the ground. Isaiah 14, how are you fallen from heaven, O shining star? Some of you have a translation that says Lucifer there. That's what shining star means. Son of the morning, you've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne above God's stars. The word stars there doesn't mean the heavenly body. Stars there is often a term for angels. So basically Satan was like, I don't know why God is getting all this worship. Hey, I'm an angel. I think I'm just going to run this part of the operation. And God said, nope. Now, I know I've been asked this question so many times since I was a teenage preacher. If God knew all this was going to happen, why did he do it? This, this is the simplest question to answer. Because all you need is a Bible, just cursory Bible knowledge to know the answer to this question. Whatever God creates, if this is a living organism, God always gives that being free will. Because you see, God desires worship from the heart. If God created a bunch of robots, what would worship mean? So God always gives his beings free choice, free will. And so he gave the angels that as well. And Satan, he started off okay, but he got a little full of himself, maybe looked in the mirror too much and said, hey, I don't know why God's getting all the stuff. I'm going to get it too. So he just said, I'm going to take heaven over. And God said, no, you're not. And he kicked him out. But here's the sad news for us in the world we live in right now. He didn't leave by himself. Now remember, Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere, but he's got a team. Because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, the Bible tells us that he started, Satan started a revolution in heaven and he had a whole bunch of companions. Now, Revelation 12, 4 is metaphorical. We're going to go down to verse 7 in a moment. It's going to get very specific. But let's look at the metaphorical language in, in Revelation 12, 4. His tail swept away a third of the stars. Okay, what stars often a reference to? Angels. So when he started that revelation in a revolution in heaven, there were a third of the angels that said, we're with you, bro. We're going to take this place over. So God didn't just expel Satan. He expect, expelled the angels. Those are the demons. And just in case you feel like you got one chasing you, and we should never be freaked out by it because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The word of God tells us there are hundreds of millions of angels. I mean, it's an innumerable number. So if you ever think about the fact that there may be a guardian angel for every member of your family, there, there's, there's truth to that. But it also means there are a whole bunch of angels that went with Satan and they do his work. Now, that's metaphorical. Look at what we see literally. Revelation 12 verse 7 gives us the history. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. And he, is, he and his angels were forced out of heaven. Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. By the way, I'm going to do a series, God willing, next summer called Clash of Dynasties 4, the book of Revelation. If you've ever been interested in that. We're going to do it in the summer so we can slow down and take our time. So that's who the devil is. You know, and one more time, he's not the goat head and the pentagram and all the silly, you know, black masses and all that kind of stuff. The Bible says he comes off like an angel of light. So he can consequently look like he's doing good stuff. That's who he is. 
Number two, if the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, what are the works of the devil? Well, you read part of it just now. When the Bible says Satan, the one deceiving the whole world. Hey, I don't want to start off on an, <laughs> on an endless topic. But let me ask you a question. Are you ever amazed at just the crazy junk that people believe in our world today? Yes. I mean, you're like, you know what? That's crazy for real. <laughs> like, I cannot. Can sane, thinking people that are out of three-corner pants, can, can they actually believe this stuff? Well, that's why, because the Bible tells us that Satan is deceiving the world. So here's what went down. Satan basically and his angels, they figured out we cannot win in heaven. So they turned their attention to God's new project because God wanted a big family. He decided to create the earth and he populated it with the first couple, Adam and Eve. And here's one thing that's not understood very clearly. So I want to teach it this morning. You understand, and it's so clearly in the book of Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he gave them kingdom authority. He said to them, rule, rule. I'm holding you responsible for your part of how you, how you manage the planet. So God gave them kingdom authority. They had a deed to planet earth. So here comes along Satan and his demons. They're like, we can't run heaven, but we're going to run this place. We're going to figure out how to do that. And Satan understood all he had to do was to get Adam and Eve to pull the same stunt that he pulled in heaven, which is get them to rebel against God. Never, never think that it was about fruit. Remember, God always gives his creation free will. And God threw Adam and Eve a very slow pitch. Just one rule. What did Satan do? He came to them and said, hey, did God say you can't have everything in the garden? They said, well, there's one tree we're supposed to leave alone. And Satan said, oh, you won't die. And of course, he got them to fall. But here's what we must understand. Because you see what Satan was after. He didn't want to just get Adam and Eve in trouble. He wanted, you remember, not like I'm trying to compare this to Lord of the Rings, but you remember the ring. What Satan wanted was to get kingdom authority. He wanted to swindle them out. I mean, here's the thing. Satan will always try to get you cheap. He, he tried to swindle, he swindled them out of kingdom authority. And now that kingdom authority that was meant for the human race has been turned over to Satan. And his demons. Somebody will say, Mark, man, that's just too much. That's, that wigs me out. That is too weird. That's what the Bible says over and over. I mean, read with me. Ephesians 2.2. 2, God talking to us. He said, you used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those to refuse to obey God. You saw what I saw, not some sort of nameless, faceless evil. God said he personally is at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So then, what are the works of the devil? Anything that's sin, anything that's anti-God. We're seeing it. See, here's the deal. We're talking about the coming of Christ in the world. We're much closer to the second coming of Christ. That's coming, I believe, very soon. We're watching our world go at breakneck pest right toward the tribulation, right toward the coming of Antichrist. We're leaving town first, but that's on the way. 
And so we're watching the worship of Satan. And one more time, I want to say to all of us, the worship of Satan is not playing. I'm going to talk to all of you really old timers here, okay? Because if you're under 45, you don't even know what an LP is. And we're not talking about backmasking and playing a record backward. We're not talking about a black, a black mass here. We're not talking about goat heads and pentagrams and that kind of thing. The worship of Satan is this. The religion of Satan is evil is good, good is evil. God is dangerous. Sin is beneficial. Believing that Jesus, the way to heaven, is bigoted and narrow. And, and, and you see, Matthew Henry, in his great commentary on 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. He said that means the framework of the devil, the system. And you and I are watching it play out, and it gets stronger every day. The system of Satan. So what are the works of the devil? Lies. Abuse, racism, deception, laziness, misunderstandings that separate friends, pornography, dirty language, cheating, sex, trafficking, selfishness, rebellion, unforgiveness, bad attitudes, sickness, death, just anything that God did not intend in the first place. Those are the works of Satan. Anything that makes our world ugly, nothing that makes the world beautiful, all of those things are the work of Satan. And make no mistake about it, evil rules in our world. Think about what the Bible says over and over and over. The Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, the Bible tells us that Satan is the one who rules this world system. And ladies and gentlemen, when you open your Bible, you read that over and over again. In John chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. And the day is coming, and we need to be watching this. Now, we won't be here at the time, but the day is coming in the tribulation period, and it may not be very far off, that the Bible says that the whole world will worship the devil. Revelation chapter 13 verse 4 tells us that the world will worship Satan and we can see that worship forming today. One of the greatest things I'll ever teach you about the devil is that he cannot create anything. Create, cre the creative aspect is part of God's personality. So for all of you who are creative, that element within you that's creative is part of your creator in your personality. Satan is incapable of creating anything. He counterfeits. That is what he does. He copies and so Satan in the tribulation is going to try to counterfeit the opposite of everything that God has established. And one more time, we're not to the tribulation yet, but wow, do we ever see that worship of Satan proliferating today. Here's his version. Satan's version of righteousness, political correctness. His version of judgment and sin, cancel culture. His version of savior, the antichrist. His version of salvation, parent political correctness, parrot, cancel culture. How dare you say anything different? Even if you believe it in your heart, the blast furnace of the culture will come after you. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. You can take that worship system and you can rip the tape off of it and what you have is evil. You can take that tape off the his version of Christ, the Antichrist, and what you will have is the devil. And you can take his taped on title for heaven and what you'll find is hell. Somebody goes say, well, Mark, I'm still confused. I thought God ruled the world. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's a good one. Suppose you owned a mall. 
Suppose you owned a shopping center and every, every square foot in the mall is yours, but you issue a lease to good friends to have a store there. And they wind up subleasing it to your worst enemy. Let's just say they have a three-year lease. Now, here you are, you own the mall, but your worst enemy has a store. And by law, they hold that store until the terms of redemption are met. Now, as I said, that's not a perfect illustration, but that is what happened with planet Earth. God turned the deed over. He turned the lease over to Adam and Eve, but when they sinned, they turned it over to the enemy. So now God's worst enemy is, is in our world today. So that takes us to the third question and we'll be through. How does Jesus beat the devil? How does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? Remember, that's what he came to do. If you could go back to the day when Adam and Eve sinned, <laughs> if the demons ever threw a party, it would have been that afternoon. I mean, you, you talk about a kegger. I mean, I'm, I'm sure... Satan and his demons, like, we got God backed into a corner now. I mean, he may kick us out of heaven, but we run this place. And why do they feel that way? Well, because now they have fouled up God's humans. And, and here's the thing. God can't reach down to the humans because they're sinners. And the sinners can't reach up to God because they're sinners. And so there's this disconnect. And Satan is like, we got them. We, we, we run this place. And that's about how things were going until late afternoon when the Bible says in Genesis 3, God showed up. And God gave the first promise of Christmas. It's in Genesis 3. Because actually, you know, let me ask you a question. Do you know the first person God talked to about Christmas? It was the devil. Look at Genesis 3.15. God said, from now on, you and the woman will be enemies, as will your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. See, see the seed of the woman, that would be a human. But somehow this human is very different. This human is not fouled up by Adam and Eve's sin. Because see, while he has a human mother, Mary, he's got God as his father. And when he comes, God said, he's going to get this place back. He's going to get the title deed to this mall back. He's going to own this thing. See, I'm sending my son into the world to destroy your works, devil. And you, you will bruise his heel. Takes about three days to get over a heel bruise. But he said, you know, when, when, when you're bruising his heel, he's going to cave your head in. So here's Jesus. He's born. He, he's, and one thing Satan knows, God keeps his word. So, I mean, he sees him. It's like, here, here's my arch enemy. And so when you look at the things that happen in Jesus' life, what you experience is Satan saying, I got to get him before he gets me. So all that stuff that went down with Herod, that's like Satan saying, I got to get him before he gets me. The temptation of Jesus. Satan offered Jesus the sweetest deal he ever offered anybody. And it wasn't sweet, but I'm just saying it was the best deal he ever offered. He tries to get us really cheap, doesn't he? You know, I, I, there was a line that God gave me for this message. And I don't, it, it doesn't really, it never fit anywhere. But I just know God gave me this line for somebody here today or yesterday whenever I was preaching. Satan will always give you a free sample of anything that puts you in handcuffs. I don't even know who that's for today. Because see, here's the deal. A lot of times the devil will make you think he's your, he's your friend. 
And I don't know why, but sports betting is getting to be a really big thing all of a sudden. It's like I see all these commercials when I watch football. I was listening to a, a, a channel on XM Radio the other day, and I was, it, was, it, was a, it was a football channel. Next thing you know, there's this gambling advertisement, and the whole idea is if you start gambling with us, we'll, we'll, we'll make your first bet free. We'll, we'll make sure you make money for that first bet. And I thought to myself, you know what that is? That's just the enemy saying, I'll give you a free sample of anything that puts you in handcuffs. So Satan offered Jesus the best deal he ever offered anybody, which was still a, a rook. But basically, Satan said to Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And listen to what Satan said in case you question whether or not Satan's in charge of this planet, this world system. Satan said, it's up to me to give it to anybody I want to give it to. And he, he knew Jesus would know if he was telling the truth there. Of course, the only thing is, if Jesus bowed down and worshiped Satan, all the kingdoms of the world will still belong to Satan. But he was doing everything he could to try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. I've heard songs, I've heard preachers talk about that when Jesus was in the grave, the demons were having a party. Don't you believe that? Because they knew at that point it was game, set, match. What Satan thought is if I can ever keep him from going to the cross, because see, here's the deal. Satan believes nobody will serve God because they love God. He believes nobody will love God. That's why he told God, Job, just serve God for what he could get out of him. He doesn't believe you love God. He believes all you're doing right now is phony. Yeah, but he was going to try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And that's why in Gethsemane, he tried to kill him. That's why the thief on the cross, in just one last futile attempt, one of the thieves on the cross said, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down from that cross and save us and save yourself? But at three o'clock one Friday afternoon, Jesus cried out one word in Greek, three works in English. It is finished. And it wasn't just that God's plan was finished. Satan knew he was finished. And all the demons of hell understood that the sentence had been passed and they had been found guilty in the court of God. Say, Mark, did Jesus win the victory on the cross? Read with me. Colossians 1, 2.15. He defeated the rulers and powers of the spiritual world. Those are all demonic forces. With the cross, he won the victory over them and led them away as defeated, powerless prisoners for the whole world to see. Well, I know what somebody's thinking right now. And if I were sitting where you're sitting, I'd be thinking the same thing. Mark, if the devil's defeated, would you mind explaining my world? Because for some reason, when the devil got defeated, it missed my neighborhood. Hey, Mark, when the... When, when the devil's defeated, for some reason, my husband has not gotten the word. <laughs> so big. You do understand that when Jesus takes authority, when he, when he takes the kingdoms, we're finished here with people being able to be saved. That's why the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some of you think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come. See, God doesn't want anybody in hell. If people go to hell, they go to hell over the love of God. One of the best examples, and I love, I love history, for those of you who've ever studied World War II, you know that there was a moment at least in late 44, early 45, where Hitler knew there was no hope, but he kept fighting, didn't he? And he wouldn't let his people surrender. And he took millions of people with him, even though he knew he was going down. It was like, there's gonna be a collapse and I'm taking everybody with me. I think Hitler is always a type of Satan, a foretype. 
And that's where Satan is. He doesn't want, he, he, he doesn't even want to let the people that serve him surrender. But I'm telling you someday the world will be under new management. Like I said, I can't wait to teach the book of Revelation next summer, but there is a line in the book of Revelation that tells about the moment where Jesus is going to step forward and take control of planet earth that he won on the cross and God's going to call time. This is in the book of Revelation chapter eleven fifteen. Happens late in the tribulation period. And the Bible says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. Guess who that's going to be? That's going to be us because there's about to be a press conference in heaven and we know what the news is. We've already heard the word because we've been there with the Lord. And so what's going to happen? And you read this with me. There's an angel that's going to step forward and clear his voice and say, clear his throat and say, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make. The world has just now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And I'm talking to somebody, you're still freaked out. You're like, Mark, I still have a hard time. I came here to hear a Christmas sermon, and you're talking about the devil. Okay, let me ask you a question. For the last couple of two and a half hundred years, what have people gone to listen to at Christmas? What's the musical piece? Handel's Messiah. Well, when you just read the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever, that is where the hallelujah chorus comes from, from this very verse. Well, the world is gonna come under new management, but you, do not, you and I don't have to wait because see, we can come under new management now because the, the kingdom of Jesus is open. It's open for people. Well, let's read this. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. See, all of us are born into the wrong kingdom. We're born because we came under a contract that was done between our first parents and Satan. And on top of that, we've added our own rap sheet to that. So we're just born in the wrong kingdom. But the Bible says that God, God wants to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. That's what salvation is all about. That's what the Bible means by that. I read this story. I was just such a young preacher, probably 20, 21. I can't even remember where I read it, but I've loved it all these years. I tell you first, back in the last part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, there were Bible study groups that would form. And uh, it was just sort of the style back in those days that they would give themselves a name. You know, the warriors, the students, I mean, whatever. And they would wear matching sweaters. And the guys and gals in these Bible studies they would have the name of their Bible study, their team, lettered on their sweaters. They're a group of guys. I, I, for some reason, I keep, I told this story several times this week, and I don't want to say it was in Philadelphia. There was a group of guys that had a Bible study. They wore gray sweaters, and they had the name of their Bible study in red letters on their sweater. And in those days, there were a lot of people coming into the United States who were dreaming of a new future, who came from different cultures that spoke different languages. And there was a couple that moved into the city and they were from another country. They had taken the ship to the United States and they understood enough English to speak a little, but they couldn't read or write English. But the guy happened to run into some of the men in the Bible study and they invited him to join them. And he was so thankful that they did. And on the first time he joined them in the Bible study, they gave him one of their gray sweaters. Didn't have the name on there. Just, it was just a matching gray sweater. 
He was so excited, he went home and told his wife, he said, these guys have invited me to their Bible study. And he said, they gave me a sweater. He said, the only problem is I don't have any words on my sweater. And she said, well, we, we don't read or write English. He said, well, I gotta have words. They got words on their sweaters. So he said, would you just put some words on my sweater? So she looked out her window and there was a meat market across the street and there was a big sign with red letters. And so painstakingly, she copied the letters and put it on the man's sweater. And he came back from the Bible study the next day and he was so excited. He said, you know what? Those guys said, I had the best sweater. They're changing their words to my words because you see, she had copied across the street a sign of a business that said, under new management. <laughs> and until you have Jesus in your life, unfortunately, you're in the wrong kingdom. And by the way, Satan's always got tailor-made evil for every one of us. But God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to transfer you. He wants to take your attendance card and he wants to reassign you to a whole new kingdom. Take it down the hall. Give it to Jesus. Well, the Bible tells us whoever asks, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not joining a church. It's not giving money. It's none of those things. It's not even jumping through religious hoops. It's about trusting Jesus as your new king. And so I want to pray a prayer with you today. Would you just bow your heads with me? And if you want to, <laughs> you want to transfer, you can make that happen before you get out of your seat today. You must believe that Jesus died for your sins. You must believe that he arose from the grave and you must invite him to be your king and he will come in, he'll forgive you of every sin. He will birth you into God's family supernaturally as God's daughter or God's son. And it's not a relationship that will last until you die. It's a relationship that will last with no end. And so if you want to pray with me, you can. I'll pray this slowly. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can just pray it in your heart. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't undo my sin, and I can't pay for them. But I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sin. And because he's alive, I want him to be my Savior, and I want him to be my King. Transfer me now into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You say, Mark, I, I, I just prayed that. I don't know that I feel anything yet. Well, it's a matter of faith, not feeling. But I want to give you a, a gift, whether you're watching online or on television. If you're all watching online or on television, to get this gift, all you have to do is text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D to 97,000. And follow the steps and I'll send this to you. There's a New Spring Bible in here. There's a book I wrote called My New Walk with God that will answer a lot of questions. There's a journal where you can make some notes and some other cool things. But if you're here on campus, any of our auditoriums, just text pray to 97,000. You'll see the info centers with this coloration and just go by and say, I pray with Mark. No hidden agenda. Just want to give you this. Aren't you glad that Christmas is about the Son of God coming to destroy the work of the devil? Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.